when Hans was only two years old, he became a worldwide sensation. Here's what Wikipedia says. He was said to have been taught to add, subtract, multiply, divide, work with fractions, tell time, keep track of the calendar, differentiate between musical tones, and read, spell, and understand German. The New York Times was even more impressed. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about clouds. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you can see it, you can be it. But what if you never see it? Then what? I want my daughters and all young women to see a field of role models have gone before them and inspire them to what's possible. So I began the Fearless Portraits Project, an art series and podcast profiling notable women of today and recent history. Listen to the Fearless Portraits wherever you get podcasts. More at danlandau.net. You probably already guessed where this is heading, but I can't resist reading part of the story from the Times, which took up about a quarter of a page. Hans is an expert in numbers, even being able to figure fractions. He answers correctly what number of fours is in eight, in 16, and in 30. Uh, I'm not sure how that works. It goes on to explain that Hans was even able to guess people's names. Of course, you've guessed Hans at the age of two wasn't a person. Hans was a horse. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. And we're talking about 1902 or 1903. Hans, the incredibly intelligent horse who would use his hoof to count out for his trainer or for others the answers to questions that were asked. The first half of this rant is, why was it so easy for Hans to seduce us into believing that he actually knew how to do all of those things? Why were we so credulous? Well, the answer is, we need to make up stories to find an explanation. Today, I was hanging out with somebody who was using Alexa to play hit music from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And what I noticed was that three of the songs that I had heard two days earlier were repeated, which immediately led me to the conclusion that there's no way this was a random collection of hit songs from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, because there are so many to choose from. How is it that I heard three songs repeated? But the fact is, I wouldn't have noticed it at all if the songs hadn't been repeated. And I've been hearing Muzak and similar mixtapes for decades and never noticed it before. It just happens that I noticed it today. But that has nothing to do with the clever Hans. Hans was demonstrating something that I'll get to in a minute, but we immediately jumped to the conclusion that he was, in fact, a miracle horse, that he could, in fact, add, subtract, multiply, divide, work with fractions, and tell time because that's an easy story to tell ourselves. Conspiracies are an easy story to believe. Coincidences are an easy story to believe. When someone rejects our book manuscript or turns us down to give a talk, the easiest story to believe is that they have spent a great deal of time examining our work, thinking about our work, wondering deeply about whether we'd be a good fit, and then 
rejected us. When in fact, it's entirely possible they never even saw your work. It's entirely possible they were having a fight with a superior or a coworker. It's entirely possible that they're just really busy. That when we talk about college admissions, 17-year-olds right at the peak of their insecurity, or at least we can hope it's the peak of their insecurity, rejected from, quote, the school of their dreams. Of course, the only thing that makes it the school of their dreams is they visited once and the day was sunny and the other people they saw were cute. But leaving that part aside, their need for status and affiliation has led them to conclude that this is their college and they got rejected. So they think they got rejected. They're making up a story. And so the easy story about Hans, clever Hans as he was known, was that Hans could actually do what people do. In fact, that's not what Hans was doing, which is the purpose of the second half of this rant. Hello, Mr. Darrow. Mr. Eastwood, the reason I'm calling, we have a big feature coming up soon, and I thought you might be interested in the starring role. It's a great script. Do you think you could get about six weeks off from your TV series? Oh, six weeks? Uh, well, I could sure try and manage that, sir. But you couldn't afford me, you cheap old windbag. <laughs> What did you say? What Hans was doing, thanks to his trainer and probably a little bit of born talent, was in that tiny moment in between being asked the question and answering it, Hans was paying attention to the person in front of him. It turned out in tests that were later done, if the person asking the question did not know the answer, Hans didn't know it either. If you asked him what time it was, he could sense after he clopped his hoofs six times that you were waiting for the number seven. And so after he clipped his hoof the seventh time, he stopped because he could see the look on your face. Maybe he could smell your pheromones. I'm not exactly sure how he did it, but humans do this all the time. We look for these micro expressions. We're taught it from a very young age. It is at the heart of happy and unhappy relationships. It has been shown again and again that if we analyze the films of couples talking to one another, we can see these tiny moments of disgust, very hard to hide in slow motion. The people who are doing them probably aren't doing them on purpose. If you've ever had a boss you really couldn't stand, it may be because they had extraordinarily bad behavior all the time that you could write down and film and post on Reddit. But it's entirely possible they had none of those things. It's entirely possible that in those tiny little moments when you were looking for how many times you should knock your hoof on the floor, you saw something that undermined you. And so, humans as storytelling machines, as story-seeking machines, are always looking at one another trying to figure out the cultural signals. Is it working or isn't it working? And for the people whose wiring makes it hard for them to do that, who are trying to live with a set of tools that are different from the tools that many other people have, it's frustrating indeed, because it is expected that these people can naturally do what I am doing or what you might be doing, and maybe they're not. All of which is a way of saying that it's not that hard to be Hans if you put in the work and you were lucky enough to be born with the talent. But 
being Hans isn't always the answer because what it does is it puts us into a tiny little game, a game with the person in front of us, a game that only works if the person in front of us knows the answer and if our job is to give them the answer that they want. But that's not always the recipe for leadership. And it's definitely not the way we build things for the long haul. That if we had asked Hans about the state of the world and whether we should be worried about all the secret agreements being made between Germany and the countries around it, because one day soon the Archduke Ferdinand and Gavrilo Princip would be in a dust-up that would lead to World War I, it's unlikely that Hans had much of anything to say about it because he was playing a tiny parlor game of looking for what the other person expected. And humans, humans were looking at Hans and saying, I hope deep down that you really are as clever as you appear to be. But neither of those things is often true. So as we think about the components of our culture, as we look up in the sky and see faces in the clouds, or we look at the toast we made for breakfast and see the image of Elvis Presley or the Virgin Mary in it, we should remind ourselves that it's really useful to have the ability to make up a story that explains the world. But often, that story we made up might not actually explain the world. A horse is a horse, of course, of course. It's also worth remembering that the person in front of us might not be showing us the signals we think they are, that each of us has a different set of tools, and the way we send those signals vary. That's a rant for sure. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions worth riffing on. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this episode or just about anything that's relevant, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Such juicy insights this week. Here we go. Hi, Seth. Kale here from Houston, Texas. As I'm working through some of your backlog, I came across your episode on cheap placebos. 
The question I'm interested in is, how well can we define placebo? Is it anything that hasn't received the double-blind study? This seems problematic to me, as there is only so much funding to conduct good and reliable double-blind studies, and because the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. is just that, an industry racing to the next buck, the money does not as easily flow towards so-called Eastern medicine or holistic approaches, and rather flows to developing and marketing the next big-name brand drug. There's a lot of distance between good, reliable, double-blind studies that prove the drug is helpful and a brand name bag that makes us feel better. But there seems to be a lot of gray area between the two ends of the spectrum. Do you have a metric for finding the difference between a placebo and a remedy that hasn't been 100% proven? Thanks for your thoughts. Take care. Thank you for this, Kale. I hope you'll forgive me, but I want to challenge the question just a little bit. I think we need to spend more time celebrating, not running from, the gulf, the gap, between truth, actual, testable, science-based truth, and belief. Because belief works precisely because we aren't sure it's true. In fact, as soon as it becomes true, it's not belief anymore. It's true. So if there is a belief that works for us, another word for that is a placebo, then we can embrace it for just that reason. The thing about studying alternative medicine in the way that the pharmaceutical industry is required to by law is that you really can't do a double-blind study on something like meditation. Either you're meditating or you're not. There isn't sham meditation. What we do know from the studies I've seen is that sham acupuncture works almost exactly as well as real acupuncture. Why is that? Because acupuncture in and of itself is a powerful placebo, and there is nothing wrong with that. That's a feature, not a bug. It's not an asterisk. It's a feature because placebos are inexpensive. You can't overdose on them. They work on many people. They work reliably over time. Yeah, I'm in favor of them. And just because there isn't a double-blind study doesn't mean it doesn't work. It works even though there isn't a study, and that's the key. What we know about the pharmaceutical industry is that there are certain kinds of tests that they have to do for patented, novel, new drugs that are extraordinarily expensive and a very difficult bar to leap through. But that doesn't mean there aren't scientists around the world who are testing things easily, like ginseng, or meditation. And there's plenty of studies you can look at online. This is not a conspiracy by the pharmaceutical industry. If something is generally recognized as safe, it's awfully easy to test whether it is actually effective in a double-blind study. But as I have said before, we're not double-blind. Even those among us with a disability, we still know what we are engaged with. And that knowing is where belief lives. And belief is powerful indeed. Where we get in trouble is when we need belief to be true. And I don't think that serves belief or truth very well. Hi, Seth. This is Pablo. This is a Colombian guy in Germany. And when I was a kid, there was this guy whose name was Ramirez, and he was the owner of the soccer ball. So at recess, Ramirez would just wait to be picked because without Ramirez, there was no ball. And without no ball, there was no game. 
what I'm thinking right now is that the game is changing for Ramirez. Because, for example, with Airbnb, uh, Uber, Spotify, Netflix, the sense of ownership is changing. And I would like and love to know about your opinion on what do you see it's going to happen in the future in the sense that now it's not the people who are the owners of the ball, but the people who make the game, who are the ones who get the people involved to start a game. So it's not about my ball, it's about our ball. I would love to hear your opinion. You are a legend. Thank you for this. This is a profound insight more than a question. And I'm just going to say this is a profound insight because owning the ball has changed. There is still a ball. It just doesn't look like a ball anymore. What we own is the playing field, the community, the algorithm, the rules, trust, the benefit of the doubt. As we move our way up the stack of value, organizing people who create value is worth more than owning the building itself. And as ideas spread, they create new webs, webs of value, and you cannot own an idea. But what you can own is the place, the community, the network where people choose to come to find each other, to figure out what things are like around here. Thank you for saying it so eloquently. Love this one. Hey, Seth. This is Emily, usually calling from the Bronx, today calling from Terrytown, New York. First, I have to thank you. You exposed me to two pieces of literature that have really changed and shifted my outlook on life. One is uh, What Technology Wants, Kevin Kelly. And in the final pages of that book, I was led to James Carson's Finite and Infinite Games. And I am thinking so deeply about these and would love to hear you speak a little about how to have strength and play the infinite game as a business owner. Biggest thing that I am, a theme that I'm taking away from both these pieces of work are the good work of our lives to increase opportunity and choice for ourselves, for others, the whole world. And I want my business to do that, to increase choice, to increase options, to increase opportunity. Right now, I'm just thinking about that as being able to hire people, give them a chance to get a job. Um, but I would love to hear you think about and talk about other ways that we as movement makers and business owners increase choice and opportunity in the world. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for the work you do, Emily. I appreciate it. As is becoming clear through these conversations, it may be that your individual action of hiring people might not be as powerful and as leveraged as you creating ideas that spread that enable large numbers of people to get to where they're going. Consider the Grayston Foundation, which is somewhere between where you were and where you are in Yonkers, New York. Grayston makes all the brownies for Ben and Jerry's. Well, they have an idea called open hiring, and what they do is just what it sounds like. The next person on the list gets a job in the factory. It doesn't matter if you used to be incarcerated, doesn't matter if you used to have substance abuse problems. Doesn't matter if you used to be homeless. If you're the next person on the list, you get a job. And this approach has changed people's lives. The challenge is you don't need that many people to make brownies. And so the real impact is when Grayston shares the idea 
with other institutions. Because if the idea spreads, the number of lives that will be changed will spread as well. So the opportunity for each of us who seek to make things better by making better things is not to figure out how to make our soccer ball bigger, but it's to figure out how to create algorithms and specs and networks and communities that spread because ideas that spread win. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.